Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. As we can all see around us, money is going through a period of unprecedented change. We have new ways of paying each other, new stores of value, new ways of recording economic activity, new types of exchange, which all use new forms of technology. But in and of itself, is this type of change something unusual, or is it something we can study in history? Well, my guest on today's podcast is Anton Howes, who's historian in residence at the UK's Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce. That's an institution that has nearly 270 years of its own history. Before joining the Royal Society, Anton was a lecturer in economic history at King's College London. His specialist subject is the period of English history leading from the 16th century to the 18th and 19th centuries when the Industrial Revolution took hold. So England moved from being a, a backwater off the northwest coast of Europe to leading the world in many areas of industry. Anton, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. I'd like to start by asking you to tell listeners a little bit more about what you do and what your area of work is. Sure. So I'm an economic historian. I'm also a historian of technology, of innovation in particular. Um, My main focus is on trying to explain why it is that the British Industrial Revolution happened when it happened in the 18th century, and also where it happened um, in Britain, this kind of godforsaken island in the middle of the Atlantic or, or you know, off, off on the periphery of Europe. Um, so if you look at the 16th century, the mid 16th century, um, Britain is very much a technological backwater, a scientific backwater. It's, it's really on the periphery of everything, that else, everything else that's happening um, in Europe. Um, it's at the periphery of the Renaissance, for example. Um, it's a primarily agrarian society. It's not particularly urbanized. It doesn't seem like a particularly good candidate for what then becomes this extraordinary acceleration of innovation, um, not just in the famous industries that you'll have heard of, you know, cotton, coal, um, iron, the application of steam power, um, but actually across all industries um, across the economy. So from agriculture to watchmaking. Um, from- thank you. Thank you, uh, Anton. Let me stop you there. I wanted to ask you, how, how do you define innovation? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I use the word innovation rather than invention um, because it's actually quite broad. Um, so I'd see it as being the creation of new ways of doing things. It could be new products. It could be new processes. When we say words like invention, we tend to I think, think of things like machinery um, rather than looking at things like organizational improvements, process improvements, um, product improvements um, as well. Um, so I try to make it as broad as possible. Um, so one of the, the fundamental parts of my research is this huge database of just under 1,500 inventors from the British Industrial Revolution, so over a 300-year period. Um, and I try to be as inclusive as possible. Um, that does become a bit tricky, though, because um, you sort of have to have a bit of a uh, it's like the the test that they had for what counts as pornography um, in 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 the Supreme Court in the United States, which is that I'll, I'll know it when I see it. Um, I think it's kind of the same with innovation. Um, there could be plenty of innovation in art, for example, or in music, but it's much more difficult to to work out what that looks like. Um, whereas when it comes to machinery, when it comes to new products, when it comes to new processes, it gets a bit easier. So there's certainly a bit of a uh, a grey area where, where my definition is probably a, a bit loose. Um, but I think that the main thing to do here is, is to see innovation um, and describe it in, in as broad terms as possible if, if we're interested in, in looking into its causes. 
Okay, great. Could you take us back then, um, if my maths is correct, about 500 years to the 16th century and tell us a little bit more about how Britain was in the, in the sense of uh, uh, crafts, uh, uh, manufacturing. In what way was Britain behind the times? Um, in pretty much every respect. In agriculture, it's nothing special. Um, in industry, you're starting to see um, the application of, of manufacturers to wool. So the traditional export for England had been raw wool, which would then be sent to Flanders, um, to places like Antwerp, to Calais, um, on, and from Calais to the rest of Europe, where, where, where it would then be um, spun and woven and fooled and dyed and turned into textiles. Um, so primarily it had been um, a place where we have a lot of primary production. Um, already by the 15th and 16th centuries, you're starting to see a bit more of a kind of domestic wool um, textile industry, um, but it's still only really getting going. Um, as for things like cotton or silk, I mean, that's not really anywhere to be seen. The same with linen. Um, when it comes to things like machinery, I mean, there's also just very little. You've obviously always had mills. We've had mills since the early Middle Ages. Um, but England is nothing special in that regard. The same for civil engineering, right? Most of the, the major civil engineers who come over in the 16th, 17th centuries are actually from the Netherlands um, or they're Flemish. Um, when it comes to fortifications, they tend to rely upon Italians um, because they're the ones who are really advancing things when it comes to star forts. Um, and, and, and how to deal with ballistics. When it comes to mathematics, um, there's really not that much going on until the 16th century as well. Um, so in, in pretty much most regards, you know, this is not a particularly urbanized society. It's not a particularly industrial society. Um, there aren't really any leader sectors or global leader sectors, um, as you might call them today. So the English economy was reliant on, um, as you say, exports of primary commodities and what we would now call value added that was done elsewhere in Europe, primarily. Primarily, yeah. But you're starting yeah. to see a bit of it. Maybe in the 14th, I'd say 14th century, there's a bit of an effort to have a bit more manufacturing, at least in wool. So what caused the bout of innovation that took place starting from the 16th century onwards in England or Britain? I don't know whether I should be using the terms interchangeably, but uh, let's let's call it England for the time being. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying England for the 16th century just because it's not until, well, it's actually one of the annoying things about writing about the, the region um, is that there are so many different terms because it does over the course of the period that I study change, right? So it becomes England and Scotland are united under the same monarch in in, in the early 17th century, but they're only officially united in the 18th century into Britain, um, and then the United Kingdom only comes along in, in the early 19th century. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to, to, to mix them up, but let's, let's, let's stick with England. Sorry, can you remind me, remind me of the- yeah, so what, so, yeah, so what, what caused the bout of innovation in England then from the 16th century onwards? What, what led to the step change in um, approach? Right, I mean, that is actually the big question, right? <laughs> um, um, the, from what I've seen, I think there are a few things to bear in mind. So the first is that one of the main things I've noticed from my research is that innovation seems to spread um, from person to person. And I'm not talking here about the spread of skills necessarily. Um, it's not that, you know, a millwright will, will educate another millwright and that's a kind of skill that just gets passed down from person to person. 
um, but rather the practice of innovation itself. Um, so what I call an improving mentality. Um, so being able to just look at the world and see things that could be improved and then apply yourself um, to improving those things. And that means you can get later on potters who are being inspired by steam engineers who in turn were inspired by millwrights who in turn were inspired by someone doing something with chemistry, let's say. Right. So innovation spreading from person to person, often through proximity, often through a bit of contact, personal contact, sometimes seemingly through the written word. Um, and I think there's nothing particularly special about Britain in that regard, at least to begin with. Actually, you've probably had the spread of the improving mentality for a much, much longer period in the past. Right. So you've almost certainly got it spreading um, in Italy in the Renaissance. You've almost certainly got it spreading um, in the Dutch Republic um, and even earlier um, if you look at the Spanish Netherlands um, um, before that, before um, the Dutch Republic asserts its independence in the late 16th century. Um, so with, within Europe and probably even further afield, you've had the spread of that mentality. So what I think we need to explain are two things. One of them is how does that mentality come to Britain um, or come to England in the first place? I think partly that's just a result of, you know, there's, a, there's obviously some proximity to France. Um, you do get people from Germany, from the Netherlands and, and so on, going to England just occasionally because, you know, in, in a world that's somewhat connected, you're eventually going to get those sorts of spillovers. Um, and then the second part of it is once it does get that mentality spreading amongst its own people, and I think that starts to happen in the middle of the 16th century um, and then onwards, you start to see certain leading sectors, um, particularly when it comes to the application of mathematics, um, Euclidean geometry, in shipbuilding, in navigation, in making navigational instruments, um, in surveying, in cartography, and so on. Um, so that's the kind of first step. And then the second step that then has to happen is for Britain to really stand out from the pack is that within Britain, institutions are created um, which then amplify that spread. So if we think of it as this virus spreading from person to person, um, something has to have happened in Britain over the course of, I think, um, what I often call the crucial century, 1550 to 1650, um, in terms of innovators themselves very often creating the institutions to, to, to amplify that spread even further. So the analogy I often use is it's a bit like a virus spreading from person to person. Um, but what happens in the 16th century, in the late 16th and early 17th centuries um, in England, is that the innovators go around kind of actually actively, proactively spreading, trying to spread that virus further. So it's a virus, but at the same time, there are human institutions that are supporting the spreading of that innovative spirit. Yeah, that's right. So, But, but the one thing to stress here is that nearly all of the institutions that, cre that get created to spread it further seem to have been created by the inventors themselves. Could you give some examples? Yeah, so... A good example from this early period would be how some of these inventors start coming up with ideas for there being some sort of academy where they should try to collect everyone together. Um, they should try to concentrate and have some sort of a, a agglomeration effects um, where if you put all of the scientists and you put all of the inventors in the same room and you get them almost living in kind of monastic conditions um, for a while that you might get um, more innovation from that. Um, and so those ideas are around since the, at least the late 16th century, and they seem to have a lot of currency um, 
in England in particular, it doesn't get applied until much later on, right? The Royal Society, founded in the 1660s, is the, is the sort of classic example of such an institution. But there seem to have been proto-versions of that in the earlier period. And there seems to be a lot of repetition of or kind of revitalization of this idea every few decades um, in the century preceding it. Um, so the Royal Society, I, I remember being taken there as a, as a, as a school kid and seeing mm-hmm. some physics, physics experiments uh, being uh, demonstrated. So this, this was not, we're not talking about university learning. We're talking about the people who were at the forefront of innovation, basically getting together and chatting amongst themselves about you know, what they're doing and sharing things with each other. Right. Right, exactly. So before the Royal Society, which is a very formalized version of it, you do have you do start to see more informal versions. Um, you often, after the Royal Society's creation, you often see um, local versions of it. Um, Royal Societies in miniature, as I think the Northampton version of it was once called in the mid eighteenth century. Um, when the Royal Society begins to seem a bit too scientific and not enough focused on innovation. Um, you then get the creation of the Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, now called the Royal Society of Arts, um, of which I've actually just written a history, which will be coming out soon. Um, But that's a kind of version where it kind of comes out of this fact that some inventors seem to be dissatisfied with what's going on in the Royal Society, that it's become too specialised in one particular direction. And so actually a lot of fellows of the Royal Society are amongst the founding fellows of, or the founding members of the Society of Arts. Um, and this is what you see throughout that 300 year period, right up until the 1850s, and actually beyond that as well, is that English inventors seem to be particularly good at institution building. Um, you mentioned up until the 1850s. Uh, I don't know, that kind of leads me to the next question I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Did this period of uh, innovation, openness, did it come to an end at some point in England? Not really, actually. Um, in a sense, Britain has pretty much always been at the technological frontier since the 16th, since the late 16th century. Um, I can't think of any particular period where you'd have had catch-up growth where it's really fallen behind other countries, maybe in the post-war period for a, a decade or two, um, but that's probably the most I can think of. Okay, but then returning to the yeah. importance of human institutions, what you're, you're, you're saying is that it, it's not driven from the top down. It's not a government-led or a monarch-led um, set of institutions. These things are created spontaneously by the people participating. Yes, exactly. And when you do have government institutions, they, they're sort of co-opted as a result of lobbying. Um, so a good example of this is actually patents, right? So patents for invention are essentially originally just monopolies. Um, so the queen in the Elizabethan period um, and kings mostly thereafter, right? The monarch will just say, I'm going to give a monopoly on this particular trade, which doesn't already exist in this country, um, in order for it to be introduced here. And usually they'd give it to some sort of courtier who they might want to give some sort of patronage to. It's it's an easy way of getting a bit of extra money if you're the monarch, right? So you say, I'm going to give you the monopoly on this in exchange for a portion of the profits, especially if you're a monarch who doesn't want to bother calling parliament because um, that can get a bit annoying, um, as the various Charleses and Jameses um, discovered to their cost in the 17th century. Um, so granting monopolies becomes one way in which to do that. But if you look at the early monopoly systems, 
um, they're very often for introducing entirely new industries. Um, so if Britain doesn't already have a, say, copper milling industry um, or brass smelting industry, then that's something that you can give a monopoly for. Now, occasionally the monarchs abuse this and they just give monopolies for things that already actually did exist. And then you've got all sorts of battles going on between the people who have the monopoly and those people saying, well, actually, look, we've been doing this for decades already. You can't just suddenly monopolize something that is our livelihood. Um, there is a, there's a, there are a few famous cases, for example, of playing cards having a monopoly or um, there was a monopoly on inns and taverns, which you know, <laughs> kind of extremely common things. Um, but what you see over time is that inventors start to, and their allies, right? So occasionally do have politically connected people who seem to be pro-innovation in general. You might call them proselytizers or evangelists for innovation. Francis Bacon um, is a very good example of this. Someone who's not really that innovative himself, but seems to be very interested in innovation as a process, a sort of ally for them um, in this process. Okay, the, the, um, the link between innovation and what, you, what you've described as monopolies or, or basically, I suppose, the link between innovation and money, um, that's very closely associated with the development of the, the corporation, isn't it, with the, the Muscovy Company, then the East India Company, the, the South Sea Company, which was linked with the famous bubble in the 18th century. Where does the... What's the link between innovation and what we might call entrepreneurship in modern day language? Yeah, that's a good point because the monopolies are sometimes for for inventions and sometimes they're for trades. Um, the thing about that, though, is when you look at the use of business forms in this period, I'd say right up until the early 19th century, the use of companies is actually pretty rare. So you get it with new trades. Um, I think the Muscovy Company is a pretty good example where a monopoly is given in order to encourage the merchants to actually go out and discover new lands, right? Originally, it's a company for the discovery, for adventuring and discovering new lands. And it's only when they discover that there's a route to Muscovy that it becomes the Muscovy Company. And just to remind listeners, Anton, how that works. So the, 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 the monarch would give uh, that monopoly to somebody or a group of people, and then they would then raise funds on the basis of that Monopoly and probably build ships and and head off to wherever they were seeking yep. to trade with. Is, That's that right. Works? That's exactly. Yeah. It, yeah. And then the monarch would get a share of the profits if they came back alive. Usually, yeah, absolutely, yeah. If they came back alive, and you know, <laughs> there are a few early failures in in that regard. Um, I mean, that system was actually functioning earlier as well. You do get a, a few monopolies given in the late fifteenth century and very early sixteenth century, but we don't hear about those because they were failures. Um, the Muscovy Company just happens to be one of the more successful ones because I think one or two of the ships actually come back um, and they, 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 they made contact with the Tsar. Um, so yes, so you've got that kind of corporate form, but actually most of the innovation, I mean, that's certainly used for explorations, but most of the innovation doesn't really use that. Um, you occasionally get the use of patents, but patents are still pretty rare. Um, like you really don't get that many given per year, um, really right up until the 1760s. Um, and even then, the patents aren't for improvements. So actually, when they regulate, when Parliament starts to regulate the granting of monopolies, which was a royal prerogative in the 1620s, they, they impose certain limits on what can be granted. So this is the often the famous statute of monopolies of 1623 to 24. 
all that really does is just limit what the monarch can do. And actually, interestingly, the effect of that statute is to formalize that there is a ban on labor-saving inventions, um, any inventions that might be that might do, as they say, mischief to the Commonwealth, and that usually includes making people unemployed. Um, so that really cuts off a lot of the stuff that does happen in the Industrial Revolution. Um, and it also includes mere improvements, as they call them, right? So actually, I mean, I think most invention is just improvements. Um, the big leaps forwards are often just bundles of improvements put together. Um, they just appear to be big leaps forward, but in actual fact, when you when you really dig down into it, you can you can break things th these things down. So it's a kind of a lucky combination of things that have that have uh, come together at the same time. Sorry, it's a it's a kind of luck, a lucky combination of of maybe disparate things that have happened in previous years. They suddenly come together, and there's a big jump forward. Yeah, or it's simply that an inventor has been working on it for many many years, and over the course of that that process has made, let's say, 50 different improvements, but when they actually finally release it to the public, it appears as though it's this big leap forward. Uh, so 400 years ago, uh, the powers that be were already concerned about labor-saving technology, putting people out of work. It sounds very familiar to us now because everybody's worried about the growth of artificial intelligence and technology reducing large parts of the labor force to unemployment. What can past episodes of of debates over labor-saving technology tell us about what's going on currently? Mm. Their concerns are slightly different, though. So concerns are really to do with unrest. Um, so if you have an unemployment, you're probably going to get a, a lot of young men in particular um, who are likely to start rioting and, and causing causing violence or becoming brigands and beggars and and generally being troublesome for the for the for the state um so that's their main concern i think i'm not really sure in terms of lessons for today because a lot of the time they're kind of preemptive these these laws um it's not that there's particularly any inventions that they're terribly worried about it's just when an invention does crop up that seems to save on a lot of labor um, they then tend to fall back on the on, on those laws in order to, to try and stamp them out. What does happen, though, is that over the course of the 17th and 18th centuries, um, somehow the inventors manage to basically just get around the laws. I mean, the laws are still pretty much on the statute books hundreds of years later. They're just not being enforced anymore. Um, and when it comes to things like patents, often what they'll do is it's, it's really just a matter of framing. Um, is that although you might actually de facto have a labor-saving invention, the way that the inventors will frame it when they're trying to get a patent, particularly right up until the mid-18th century, um, is that they'll say, look, this may seem like it will do this, but in actual fact, it'll create more jobs as a result of the extra demand that it'll, it'll, it'll um, result in as a result of you know, introducing this new trade. And what they'll try to do is it's, it's really kind of a matter of good PR, I think, is that the, these British inventors tended to be very cognizant of the kinds of themes um, that those in power would be worried about. So if there's a lesson for today, at least for modern inventors, it's that there's often a way, or if, if that history shows that even in the kinds of um, circumstances where the state might be not particularly pro-innovation, there's often a way to try and um, appeal um, or at least get around those concerns by framing things the right way. 
And, and ha- coming back to your earlier point about uh, people, innovation happening spontaneously, um, more broadly, how important is a culture of openness and sharing for innovation to take place? Because, again, drawing modern parallels, we're arguably going through a period of, of um, people sp- spitting off from, a let's say, common internet or we're seeing uh, countries go their own ways and depart from uh, multilateral institutions. Brexit is a good example. You know, can we draw parallels in that way to what's going on currently? Yeah, I think that kind of openness is extremely important. Um, although, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned things like the kind of splitting up of things, because in a sense, that's also what happened at the same time, right? So the the original Republic of Letters, that all these letters crisscrossing Europe over the course of the 16th century amongst the academic elites. I mean, they're writing in Latin. That's the that's the lingua franca. Um, I mean, nowadays, I suppose the world's lingua, uh, lingua franca tends to be English, and there is a period in between where it's French. Um, but what actually happens in the in the mid 16th century is that they some people start to view it as being important to start translating all of these works that are in Latin um, to be more widely accessible to their local populations. So, in a sense, there's a kind of pulling away from the Republic of Letters in that a lot of stuff starts getting published in English or separately in French and Italian and so on, um, which does have you know, a positive effect in those particular countries. Um, and the other element here is that I think another thing that's really important in terms of how it is that inventors were able to convince elites that innovation was important was by playing upon fears of international competition. Um, if, there's, if there's one aspect that seems to define Britain right up until... I mean, even the late 19th, maybe even the early 20th centuries um, is paranoia about international competition, even when Britain is well ahead, demonstrably ahead in the mid 19th century, for example. um, Institutions like the Great Exhibition to try and bring all of the manufacturers of the world um, under the same roof. That seems on the face of it, looking back as though it's it's a sort of triumphalism on the part of British. But actually, if you look at the, the reasons for them holding it, and if you look at the press reaction to it, very often it's just saying, oh, crap, the French are catching up. And what can we do to try and keep ahead? Um, so I think, you know, actually playing upon that paranoia can be a good thing. Now, obviously, it can it can go can go wrong. Um, it could go badly if, if, if mismanaged. And taken too far, it can lead into, you know, that, that, that sounds like the kind of uh, uh, Competition between countries, which uh, led us to the First World War, because that was a, an extreme version of uh, paranoia about uh, other countries' ambitions and how Britain should yeah. react. Yeah, so you almost want. So the great thing about the Red Exhibition, for example, is that it was seen as a bit like, um, and actually, um, you know, the Olympics had a, had a pretty similar basis. Is let's have this outlook for, for peaceful competition. Is that well, let's be as competitive as we always have been, but through a peaceful means of doing it. I mean, we very often make these comparisons saying, you know, whereas before Britain and France has has, has um, competed when it comes to swords and guns and so on, now let's compete when it comes to machinery and design and textiles and so on, right? So it's it's very much about kind of trying to, trying to I guess, bend swords into plowshares. And a final question, if I may, Anton, what lessons can we draw then from what you've been describing? Are there any 
institutions we should be trying to create now? Do they already exist, perhaps through you know open source technology networks? Is there anything in particular we we can draw lessons from and uh, you know improve ourselves, as it were? Mm-hmm. I think it's worth looking back at the older models, right? I can't think of anything quite like the Great Exhibition today. Right. There's nothing, although you've still got the world fairs, which came out of the, which are kind of successors to it. They've changed very much in that nowadays they're pretty much just national branding exercises. Right. Whichever host country happens to do it will just kind of try to big up its own country and try to project this very sort of um, sanitized image of itself, as will many of the other countries that are sending stuff to them. Um, in, in the past, however, they were called the great exhibition. You know, exhibitions of the industry of all nations. It was a chance to really put things in the same room and compare like with like, right? That way, the manufacturers, when they looked at the steam engines from France and Germany and the United States and Britain, could say, okay, these people are ahead, these people are behind. Here's how we, here's what we can do to catch up, um, or here's how we can, the next time around, um, be ahead of the pack. And the same when it came to consumers, is they they could look at these things. And say, okay, well, why is it that the textile designs in France are so much better um, than those in Britain or those in Germany? Why don't we demand similar design from our own domestic manufacturers? Or indeed, let's let's try to get the tariffs lowered so that we can import this good stuff from abroad, right? So there's a sort of assumption of openness um, behind those sorts of institutions. I can't really think of anything quite similar today. Um, but also when we look at you know the evolution of copyrights, patent systems, and so on. It strikes me as weird very often that those things have become much stronger over time, despite the fact that, for example, finances are much easier than ever before to, to raise. Uh, right. So patents in, in the UK are often typically, what, 20 something years. Um, in the past, they were they were seven, 14 years. Um, and when you look at the relative ease of getting a business going from a patent back in the 1780s versus today, um, you'd think that it would have gone the other way, that they'd have had much, a much longer time to, to get these things set up and a much shorter time available to them now. Um, so I think there are certain lessons that could be drawn from it. Um, I mean, the main, but the main overall kind of meta lesson, if you like, um, is that we should be very cognizant of trying to adapt institutions to further keep innovation going. Um, that I think was the lesson of the Industrial Revolution. Why why Britain is so special is because its inventors are so particularly proactive in this regard. Anton, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating chat. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. listening to this new Money Review podcast. The world of money is changing fast. We see new stores of value like cryptocurrencies, new ways of paying each other like contactless and digital wallets, and new ways of recording ownership. New Money Review's articles and our podcast can help you stay on top of what's going on. If you'd like to support our work, you can make a one-off donation or a regular payment. Details of how to do so are on our website, newmoneyreview.com at the bottom right of our homepage.